What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History, your favorite podcast on history, geopolitics, culture, foreign policy, makeup tutorials, travel vlogs, Game of Thrones. What else? Give me ideas. Give me ideas. There's no one here to bounce ideas off me, so I have to stop there. What's going on, guys? I hope you're having a wonderful Friday. Uh, hopefully, this doesn't get out too late. Um, I'm kind of running. Um, well, I actually, this is the second time I'm recording this podcast. The first time I did it, um, there was this just a fight outside of my studio. I mean, I mean apartment. I mean studio. And it, they were, it was just insane, and I had to stop recording it. And um, now I'm doing it for a second time. And uh, I wanted to get through a couple of topics because we haven't put out an episode since Tuesday, and there's been a lot of shit that hit that has hit the fan. So I'm um, going to talk about uh, Assange, um, the Israeli elections, because I haven't had a chance to yet, as well as what's going on in Libya. Um, those are the three main focuses for today. However, first thing I want to do is I want to thank everyone who's been rating and reviewing the podcast. It means a lot to uh, our success. Um, there's been more coming in lately. And I think as I talk right now, we're at 88 reviews. So if you could please be a doll and if you could please rate the podcast if you have a chance. Um, if you're especially if you're on Apple podcast right now, we're at 88. We really want that number uh, past 100. And my thinking is, is that once you get past that 100 mark, it kind of further legitimizes your, yourself. You know, when you see a podcast with 100 ratings, you're like, okay, this actually has an audience. Um, when you see a podcast that has no ratings, you're like, what the hell is this? I'm not listening to it. Um, so please, uh, please rate and review the podcast uh, five stars if you think so, or please, or I'm not going to beg you. But uh, yeah, give it a rating. Uh, can't stress it enough how much it helps us. And uh, I'm also thrilled to see the nice reviews. It, it, it does keep me doing this. Um, but first, before we get into our uh, the main topics, I wanted to do a quick recap of our last episode, the Game of Thrones up, uh, Game of Thrones as political characters or, or vice versa. We got some really good feedback from the episode, so we might do another one in the future. Somebody messaged me on Facebook uh, correcting, correcting um, our, our take on uh, Cersei Lannister as Hillary Clinton. Or, well, Danny actually said uh, Daenerys Targaryen as Hillary Clinton, which I thought was unbelievably ridiculous. I would never, ever, ever associate Hillary Clinton with a redeeming character like Daenerys Targaryen. Um, I, couldn't, I could not accept that. But I said that she was Cersei, and um, I think most people would say uh, on the surface level because Hillary is a you know conniving evil bitch um, to say in, in the nicest terms, and uh, Cersei Lannister is uh, quite evil herself. So I thought they would make a perfect pair. Um, but someone messaged me on Facebook saying that Hillary Clinton was Stannis Baratheon. <laughs> And I thought that that was actually great. Uh, and uh, the his uh, the reason why he said it is because she believes she has the claim to the throne. She's power hungry. No one likes her. She sees no problem with murdering, and uh, she kills children to honor a deity associated with fire. So I thought that was hilarious. 
So thank you so much for that message. I think I think that is the better one. Um, Hillary Clinton is Stannis Baratheon of House of House Baratheon. Um, hopefully the same. No, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say hopefully the same fate happens. But yeah, Hillary Clinton's terrible. Um, you know my opinions on that. Um, I guess we'll move into the main crux of the show julian assange i guess that's the most important thing in the world that's going on right now i mean we knew that this was all going to happen sooner or later um the guy's been in the embassy for six years and um there's been a lot of pressure for for ecuador to give him up um so i think that the main thing you want to highlight so ecuador just had a 4.7 billion dollar loan approved from the imf and then bam julian assange is abducted and I actually thought, I heard this was going to be a thing. The Brits were supposed to block the embassy, but I guess, I guess the Facebook group uh, couldn't coordinate properly. Um, in a nutshell, the allegations against Assange is that uh, WikiLeaks is a website that uh, solicits the submission of classified information. And Assange did not just receive classified documents, but he assisted in receiving them. He tried to help... Uh, Chelsea Manning or Bradley Manning at the time um, crack a password in order to cover up her tracks. So they're accusing him, like the charges against him are, are for hacking rather than journalism. And that's why you see all these like loser New York Times reporters. They're like, oh, Julian Assange isn't a journalist. Bang, he's a hacker. Russia, Russia, Russia. Um, that's why you're seeing all that because uh, he, he was assisting Chelsea Manning um, and he was, a, he was helping her cover up her tracks because she wanted to remain anonymous, which is like, obvious, like, obviously, like if you're going to be handing over secrets to WikiLeaks, you don't want your identity presumed, right? It makes perfect sense. So, um, they're accusing him of hacking rather than journalism. And what this indictment ultimately does to him, it, it criminalizes what journalists are ethically required to do to protect their sources. And I think it's really, it's very important to point out that they're trying to criminalize ethical journalistic behavior, which is nuts. And another thing that, that I find really interesting about Julian Assange and, and how he's a public enemy is that none of the information that WikiLeaks has published uh, over the years, none of it has really been about national security. Or, or spying at all. Like the things that he published were about, were about uh, dead civilians, like killed civilians in Iraq. And everyone knew that information anyway. I, he just released the actual footage. And the information about civilian casualties, that was being released by a lot of online publications. Um, I can name a few offhand that were talking about this and publishing stuff and writing about it. Um, Antiwar.com was. Um, Whatreallyhappened.com was. Um, I think Moon, Al Moon over Alabama was as well. All these websites were actually publishing that same information. And uh, everyone knew that we were killing innocent people in Iraq. So it's not like that big of a bombshell. The problem is with Assange on, on that is that Assange is a household name. And he really got that information in the hands of everyone in the world. So that's why it's such a big deal. That's why he's public enemy number one. Um, to the U.S. Justice and State Department and White House because he was able to uh, really kind of brand himself as the guy with all that insider information about 
uh, war atrocities going on in the Middle East. But um, it, it's, it's really interesting because it's not, what Assange has done has not been that unique uh, compared to some other journalists, but I mean, he's the one, obviously he's the biggest one, so he is taking the uh, most heat. What I find specifically disturbing about this whole situation is that the corporate press and the politicians have been going with the narrative that WikiLeaks is an arm of the Russian intelligence. Um, WikiLeaks works is a, is an intelligence arm of Russia, which is just I I don't know. Like, do people actually believe this? Like, I I don't talk. I I might live in an echo chamber. Most of my friends are are you know think the whole Russia Gate stuff is complete bullshit, um, or they thought it was complete bullshit from the entire time. But like, I I'm, I'm always just perplexed that people believe this this uh, Russian collusion, or they went with this narrative for so long. Um, again, I guess there is a rather large audience of Rachel Maddow, um, just like there's a big audience of Alex Jones. Like, there are two sides of the same coin, Rachel Maddow and Alex Jones. There's really no difference between them. One just puts, you know, Alex Jones just talks about, like, uh, drills that go into the middle of the earth and earthquake machines. And um, I'm actually going to get to something at the end of this episode uh, about chemtrails, which is really funny. Um, but you know what I mean. And Rachel Maddow talks about crazy Russia conspiracy theories. So they're, they're two sides of the same coin. But the media still runs with this because it's politically convenient. And of course, politicians, both from the left and the right, Republicans and Democrats are both doing this. Um, Chuck Schumer tweeted, and this was like a really, really good example. Um, he tweeted, now that Julian Assange has been arrested, I hope he will soon be held to account for his muddling in our elections on behalf of Putin and the Russia government. Let me read that again in, uh, in uh, Chuck Schumer's voice. Now that Julian Assange has been arrested, I hope he will be soon be account. I hope he will soon be held to account for his muddling in our elections on behalf of Putin and the Russian government. Ah. Chuck Schumer is the Dave Smith, um, who does, uh, who's a comedian. He's a libertarian comedian. Um, he has a podcast called uh, Part of the Problem. He called him a, uh, a angry, he's like an angry uh, guy who works at a deli. <laughs> like he, the guy is always reluctant to give you a sandwich. That's, that's basically Chuck Schumer. He's just such, a, he's such an a-hole. Or no, I think he actually called Andrew, uh, Andrew Cuomo that. But I digress. Um, but yeah, th- this narrative is ridiculous, and and I and it's really unfortunate that people are 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 talking about that. And uh, of course, MSNBC, CNN, New York Times, every other news outlet that that has proven uh, as unreliable has been going with that narrative. I think the one silver lining with that is that uh, if Julian Assange starts talking, I think he could start talking about what really happened with the DNC emails. Specifically, I think that there is the opportunity, and not a, I don't want to go into conspiracy theories, but I, it's possible that Seth Rich could be brought up. Um, for those who know, uh, Seth Rich allegedly, here's the rumor, which I happen to believe, 
Um, Seth Rich is the guy who uh, provided the information to WikiLeaks. Um, Julian Assange nodded to that. Um, there was an interview where he said that uh, after Seth Rich was murdered, of course, um, he was being asked if Seth Rich was the one that uh, WikiLeaks, that, that, uh, that leaked that information, the, the uh, John Podesta emails over to, to WikiLeaks, and he kind of winked and nodded at it. I'll play the clip right now so you can hear it and you can just judge it for yourself. Donald Trump has had a disastrous few weeks. If you look at the polls, he needs a miracle. Um, in the American political lexicon, there's such a thing as the October surprise. The stuff that you're sitting on, is, is an October surprise in there? We Do you even know what you're sitting on? WikiLeaks never sits on material. Uh, our whistleblowers go to significant efforts to get us material and often very significant risks. As a 27-year-old uh, works for the DNC, who was shot in the back, murdered uh, just two weeks ago uh, for un unknown reasons as he was walking down the street in Washington. So that was, that was just a robbery, I believe, wasn't it? No, it's, there's no finding. So uh, that's what are you the suggesting? Sort of, what are you suggesting? I'm suggesting that our sources... Uh, take risks, and they are—they become concerned uh, to see things occurring uh, like that. But was he one uh, of your sources then? I mean, we don't comment on who our sources but are. Why but why make the suggestion about a young guy being shot in the streets of Washington? Because uh, we have to understand uh, how high the stakes are uh, in the United States, and that our sources are, you know. Our sources face serious risks. Uh, that's why they come to us, so we can protect uh, their anonymity. Uh, but it's quite something and, to suggest a murder. So, that's basically what you're doing. Well, that others have have suggested that uh, we are investigating to understand uh, what happened uh, in that situation with Seth Rich. I think it is uh, a concerning situation. I, there's not a conclusion yet. We wouldn't be willing to um, state a conclusion, but we are concerned about it. And more importantly, um, a variety of WikiLeaks sources are concerned when that kind of thing happens. I, I just don't see any other obvious answer to what happened to him. Like, call me crazy, call, but it seems just, just, just break it down. This guy was murdered at four in the morning on a botched robbery by two guys who who didn't take anything, who left all of his belongings, who left his watch and his, left his wallet, who and just left the, it. It makes absolutely no sense right after he allegedly or apparently leaked um, emails that shifted the global power dynamics. I, I, think that, I think that is quite possible that his unfortunate murder was, was a consequence of his actions, which were brave um, if he did do it which I believe he did. But if Julian Assange uh, comes out and if he testifies and he says that um, Seth Rich is the one that leaked that information to him, then a murder investigation opens. And uh, maybe that Trump uh, saying or, or that Trump uh, debate line, you'd be in jail, thing will actually come true, which would be great because she is a nutter. All right. So... It's unfortunate. I felt really terrible about Julian Assange seeing his, uh, just seeing just him with his really with his old man beard. Uh, he looked like a Rip Van Winkle. Like he, it's 
it was terrible. Like that guy was tortured, um, just being stuck in an embassy for six years for actually just doing journalistic work and having and being being a journalist with integrity. Uh, it sometimes does does not pay off well. And uh, hats off to Assange. I hope I hope everything goes. I hope uh, I hope some good something good comes out of it. But uh, let's move on to something else. I want to transition into the Israeli elections because I've, I've wanted to talk about this really bad, but I've never really had the chance to go into detail. Uh, we've covered the Israeli elections in a very minor capacity. And it's funny because it was actually my New Year's resolution to, to follow it and uh, to really explain what's going on over there. And unfortunately, I failed in that regard. Like, I didn't really cover the Israeli elections. Um, I mainly focused, or and this podcast is mainly focused on Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Syria, North Korea, the 2020 elections. Like we we haven't really done anything specific to Israel. Um, however, we did do an episode on Netanyahu's corruption scandal um, and the relationship between Netanyahu and Jared Kushner. And we have talked about Netanyahu specifically in passing, but we've never really done like what's 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 the political climate in Israel right now. So I think now is the perfect time to go over that. I, I really think this is important to understand um, this this election and what the implications are. Um, so now that Netanyahu has declared victory, uh, which I thought was going to happen, um, I'm going to break this down. So the Israeli election was a competition between Netanyahu. Um, the Likud party, which is the center-right party in Israel, versus Benny Gantz. And what Benny Gantz did is that he united three different parties, and he created the Blue and Whites. One of the parties that joined the Blue and Whites previously had a coalition with the Likud party. So it was different coalitions in the, in the Knesset that formed to create the Blue and Whites. And that's what Benny Gantz was in charge of. And it was different walks of life. The media portrayed the blue and whites as center left. But that wasn't the reality. And Benny Gantz wasn't center left. Benny Gantz is a military man. Benny Gantz, if you type in Benny Gantz in your Google search bar, the first thing that will pop up will be Benny Gantz, Israeli general. He's a general. He's a military man. And what he ran on is he ran on a platform of security. And when he attacked Netanyahu, he attacked him from the right. So if you remember, um, Bibi was under fire when he made that ceasefire deal with Hamas in November of last year. Um, His defense minister, Lieberman, he resigned. And the Israeli media was starting to talk about having early elections for security issues and all that. Um, Lieberman went ahead and he backed Gantz, by the way, and Lieberman is very, very, very hawkish. He's like, if you think BB is hawk, is hawkish, then Lieberman is, and makes BB look like, uh, Jimmy Carter. You know, it, it's, there's people who are more hawkish in Israel than, than Benjamin, than Yahoo. I just want to be clear about that. And um, at the end of the day, I don't think most people really cared about the, the corruption indictments on, on Netanyahu. Um, they don't really care about it. They cared more about the security issues. And what these elections really reflected is that Israel, I think, has really moved further to the right wing. 
Like I was looking at the election results and the big left-wing party, or I guess it was the big left-wing party, the, the Labor Party in Israel, they only got 6% of the vote. Like that, the Labor Party was once in power and they only have 6% of the vote. So it shows you how far that has, that has diminished. But now Netanyahu, but now Netanyahu is, uh, is going to form a coalition government. Um, despite most parties having the same foreign policy, Israel is pretty divided when it comes to domestic issues. So Netanyahu is going to, to have to form a new government with probably some more right-wing groups in Israel. And here's the thing. I think people on the left in America, um, they were pulling for Gantz, but they don't realize that Gantz ran on security and militarism and got, being tougher on Gaza. They, they don't look between the lines. And when he was attacking Netanyahu, he was attacking him on Gaza. Gaza was, is always the weak, was always the weak point for Netanyahu. It's always been his weak point that he's not hard enough on the Gaza Strip. He's not hard enough on Hamas. And that's why when Netanyahu, when there's like kind of a, you know, there's a rocket that goes, that gets shot down by the Iron Dome, or worse, if it kills someone, unfortunately, there's always kind of like a precision airstrike, kills a bunch of people, then it goes away, and then back, and then a lot of people think that Netanyahu is too soft on, on, on Gaza and Hamas. So I think the big question is, though, is that now Bibi had a number of different weaknesses on this election, and, and, uh, Gantz was ahead in the polls um, about a week prior to the election. It looked like he was probably, or he could win at least. So how did he win with all this baggage? He had the corruption. And believe me, the Israeli newspapers kept on talking about these corruption scandals. Um, it, to get more specific, we've talked about it, but, but uh, Bibi was indicted by the Israeli police for uh, granting political favors to media outlets in exchange for good press. Um, he was also indicted for accepting $270,000 worth of champagne and cigars as gifts. So his wife was complicit as well. Uh, BB is apparently a really big cigar guy, and his wife, is, uh, his wife loves champagne. So they, they were accepting a lot of gifts. They approved the merger. Um, based, it was just it was all sorts of stuff. And, and they're, they're quite real. They're quite serious. And, and by all accounts, they seem to be true. And in addition to the corruption charges, and like, I, I believe me, Haaretz wrote about these corruption charges every single day. And Haaretz is like the New York Times of Israel. Like it was the, every single day this was being covered. It wasn't brushed under the rug. Um, they were being very hard on him for that. So in addition to his weakness on Gaza, how did he win? How did, how did he pull through? So I think that Netanyahu won because of his relationship with Donald Trump and Jared Kushner. Um, Donald Trump did two major things for Netanyahu. First, he recognized the Golan Heights as Israel. Well, maybe we can peel this back. First, he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That was huge. That was, that was right when Trump was elected, but I mean, that plays a part. It kind of sets in motion the start of the relationship between BB and America, that I had the best relationship with the U.S. We need, I, I need to be here to keep this relationship going. So that happened. So D Jerusalem, um, Israeli capital, won. Uh, but that happened a while ago, so people have short memories. But what Donald Trump did recently is that he recognized the Golan Heights as Israeli. And that was huge. That's been in dispute for decades, and there's no one else on earth who actually recognizes the Golan Heights as Israeli. Everyone recognized it as Israeli-occupied, but actually Syrian. 
Trump went ahead and said that is Israeli territory. Um, that is not that's part of uh, Israel proper. So that was huge. Bibi was able to say, "Look, I got the Golan Heights. Well, I got the I got the deed for the Golan Heights." So that was huge. And around that time when he did that, um, this was like a week ago. That's when you saw Bibi's poll numbers actually get past Gantz. And then the nail in the coffin, and I think this was, this was obviously politically planned, um, right before the election, Donald Trump and the State Department, they labeled the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist group. And um, I, there's no one else on earth who recognizes them as a terrorist group besides, besides uh, Israel and the U.S. And, and just, like to th- just to think about that further, it would be like if... Uh, you know, Iran recognized the Navy SEALs as a terrorist group. Like, they're a state part, they're, they're part of the Iranian army. They're just the elite force of the Iranian army. So with all that, um, Netanyahu was able to kind of show off to the Israelis that, look, look what I can get Trump to do for us. I can, I can get Trump to do all this stuff. And I think that's what really put him ahead at the end. Um, the election was so close. If those favors weren't granted by Trump, then I don't think that I think Gantz would be the prime minister of Israel right now, not Netanyahu. And if you, if you go back and if you look into Netanyahu and, and uh, his relationship with Donald Trump, it's it's much more personal than political. So his son-in-law, uh, Jared Kushner, uh, the Kushners and Netanyahu, who have a very good, clo- they have a very close relationship, and it goes beyond just like being friends. It's it's like a family friend relationship, uh, having dinner together, type stuff, like spending holidays together, uh, to the point where when Netanyahu is in town, when he's in New York, he stays at the Kushners and he sleeps in Jared Kushner's bed. Just, just think about that. So he sleeps in Jared Kushner's bed, and I know you're probably like the vision of like them huddled up in a uh, in a uh, Ferrari bed is like definitely comes to mind. Obviously, it's more like a Jared Kushner's bed is probably like the Ritz Carlton, but it, it's it's just a funny thought to think of. But they're very close, like they're they have a very close friendship. So of course they were going to grant they were going to be doing these political favors for for Netanyahu to make sure that that he got in at the end of the day. Um, another thing that's super interesting about this is that right before the election, Putin, Vladimir Putin, Putin and Netanyahu had this symbolic meeting where Putin delivered, or I'm not sure, he located the remains of a dead Israeli soldier who died in the 1982 war uh, against Lebanon. It's kind of strange. Like They have a good relationship. Well, apparently Putin and Netanyahu, they do have a, a pretty civil relationship. And I guess Putin recognized, you know, the devil, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. I think, I think that's where he, his logic comes because that was the reason why that's important for, for Putin to endorse Netanyahu or why uh, Putin's endorsement or his, his uh, civility with, with uh, Putin is important is because uh, Israel has a pretty large Russian population. There's about a million Israeli Russians um, who are still loyal to Russia. So they were able to get those votes as well. With the combination of Trump and Putin's endorsement, you get like both sides of the, you know, the world powers. Um, they, they, they were able to pull a coalition in and, 
and um, they were able to get BB on his fifth term. Uh, at the end of the day, does it matter? I, I don't really think so. I don't think that foreign policy wise, like it's not going to like our relationship with Israel wouldn't have changed if Gantz was president. So or prime minister rather. So um, I don't really think it matters. Uh, but yeah, BB's back for another fifth term. So uh, get prepared for more shameless diagrams of, of Iranian bombs. Um, that's what I would get prepared for. So Libya. Libya has been second tier news for since Hillary Clinton had Gaddafi killed. It's been pretty much second tier news. Um, no one's really given a shit what's going on there. Um, and uh, there's also been a lot more uh, theatrical things that have been going on, uh, specifically Syrian war, North Korea. So people kind of, Libya is an afterthought to most people, and people don't want to take time to, to do the research. But it's, it's becoming a pretty big hotspot right now if you've been, uh, if you've been paying attention. And uh, just to give you a, a short summary, uh, Khalifa Haftar, who was uh, Gaddafi's uh, chief of military, uh, military staff back in the day, he is uh, attacking Tripoli as we speak, and he's trying to remove the UN-backed government. And I say that with, uh, with air quotes, the UN-backed government, because um, this government is uh, not... <laughs> I wouldn't call it like a legitimate progressive government, even though the UN backs it. But yeah, he, he's going after and he's trying to remove the government there and he's trying to create a, a secular government like Gaddafi. So it's, it's kind of it's definitely a power grab. And you can see that Toyota Hilux is lined up and, and uh, there's there's images of this everywhere of these uh, Toyota Hiluxes ready to ready to uh, put a siege on Tripoli. All right, so this is important to know. The government in Tripoli is a Turkish-backed Muslim Brotherhood group. It's an extension of Turkish imperial ambitions. Turkey wants a foothold in North Africa. They've already failed in Egypt, and they're going to fail in Algeria right now. There's the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to uh, have a coup in Algeria. They want to take power there. They failed in Egypt uh, years ago. Um, Haftar wants, wants to create a secular government in Libya, just like Gaddafi did. And honestly, that's probably the best thing for Libya right now because the country is in absolute total chaos. It's a failed state with an open air, uh, it's a failed state with, with an open air slave trade. That's where all the migrants in Europe come from. There these, all these, it's just, it's terrible. It's terrible. There's a bunch of Al Qaeda groups. There's a bunch of jihadist groups running around. It's just like Mad Max type failed state. It's awful. Um, Haftar, uh, basically, he's a Libyan nationalist. He has that background in the military. He wants to, I guess, consolidate power because now is the perfect opportunity, and he is an opportunist, it seems like. But it'd probably be good for the security of Libya in the long run. Now, what makes this interesting is that the dichotomy in the Middle East of what countries back what political movements or what military movements has completely shifted in Libya. Like All, all of that has gone out the window. On one side, you have, and this is the side that supports Haftar, you have um, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and uh, even Russia, kind of, even though Russia won't just come out and say it. But those countries are all supporting Haftar. They want, the sec they want a secular gov government in Libya. And what do all these countries have in common? I mean, they all hate the Muslim Brotherhood. Russia hates them because the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to 
perform a coup in Algeria, and they don't want the, the Brotherhood in Algeria to link up with the one in Tripoli. Um, historically, Russia and Algeria have been very good allies. Um, Algeria's military is pretty badass when you look at it. Uh, they have all this sick Russian equipment like Sukhois and MiGs and all this stuff. It's a very advanced military. If you look on the list, right, I don't know what it is right now, but Algeria, I'm pretty sure, is in the top 20 militaries in the world. Um, it's, very, it's very advanced. Um, Russia doesn't want to lose that asset in North Africa at all. So that's why Russia wants, wants it. Um, Egypt hates them because they're a threat to their current government. Uh, it was the Muslim Brotherhood that led the uprising against Mubarak. And uh, they don't want the Muslim Brotherhood back in Egypt. Now, Saudi Arabia in a UAE, they hate the Muslim Brotherhood because they're a threat to Islamic monarchies. And that's what they are. They're Islamic monarchies. So you have some of the guys who you would normally see as the bad guys in some conflicts kind of coming off as like the on the right side on this conflict, which is always just really kind of kind of it's, it's, it's confusing because people really don't know what to think. Um, I think most people paint the picture, paint world conflicts in a black and white canvas, and they say, okay, these are always going to support the bad guys. These are going to support the good guys. First of all, there is no good and bad guys, and people are, countries are always going to do things in their own political and geopolitical interest. It's not just because they are good or bad. Now, um, the countries that are, are supporting the current government in Tripoli are, uh, they're, the U.S. has kind of said they are. Um, Britain has kind of said they are. But the important ones to take note, like the ones that are like are actually backing this, the Muslim Brotherhood, are Turkey and Qatar, and even Iran, which really makes it weird because then that comes that makes Iran and the U.S. on the same side, which is like inconceivable even to me. But yeah, Iran is Iran has a relationship with some, with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, at the end of the day, I don't think the U.S. really cares that much. France has actually endorsed Haftar. They, they, they're picking winners in this one, and, and they actually, they've actually endorsed Haftar. So they're not going with the U.S. and Britain, um, even though I don't think the U.S. and Britain really care. But yeah, Iran is the one that's the most interesting because Iran is like, what, Iran? Like, what's going on there? So I, Iran, ha if you look at the history of Iran and the Persian Empire, um, Iran has not had historic ties with North Africa since the Persian Empire. Um, and, and that, that's over 2,500 years ago. Like the last time that they controlled Egypt was, uh, I think around 500 BC. Um, so they don't have any, there's no Persian culture ties in Africa. And the only way that they have, the only way to mediate or to, to have a consulate there is through the Muslim Brotherhood, is through Islam. So they use the, mother, the Muslim Brotherhood as a consulate to gain influence there. Um, that's why you see Iranian media, they keep on emphasizing that Haftar is a CIA asset. And that's ridiculous because, yeah, it is true. Haftar was a CIA asset. You see, during the Toyota Wars, which is like this really interesting war between Libya and Chad, um, it's for anyone who's really into military history, I would, I would study that. Uh, it was a border dispute in northern Chad uh, between Gaddafi and, and, and you know, Gaddafi's Libya and, and Chad, and they, uh, they fought in this war, and Chad, was, they started utilizing Toyota Hiluxes 
they started putting guns on top of them and and these uh toyota hiluxes are really really durable they are super good in the sun um they're just really awesome for desert warfare and they ended up winning the war even though Gaddafi's military was in greater numbers and it also had more advanced equipment uh but chad won because of their resourcefulness in using these trucks but uh, it's a super cool story that we actually hope to get into in another podcast in really, really deep detail. However, um, Haftar was imprisoned in that war. And when he was imprisoned, he was, put a, he was uh, disowned by Gaddafi uh, to the point where Gaddafi was exiled from Libya. Uh, the CIA approached him at one point and uh, they trained him in America as well. So Haftar is an American citizen, which is interesting enough. And... Uh, what what my thing is so what who cares like who who really every single arab strongman in the universe has been approached by the cia at one time or another you are not a legitimate arab strongman if the cia hasn't recognized you as a potential asset that basically means that you're a nobody if the cia hasn't approached you and I can name, off the top of my head, I can name Saddam Hussein was a CIA asset. When Saddam Hussein, before he became the babies on incubator things, before that, he was a CIA asset. In the 1970s, the CIA gave a list of socialists and people that we didn't like in Iraq. We gave that list to Saddam Hussein. We said, hey, um, here's the list. And Saddam Hussein went ahead and hung all those people. He just hung them. And we didn't ask him to do it. He just did it. And we were like, whoa, we can work with that guy. But Saddam Hussein had a deep relationship with the CIA. Osama bin Laden had a deep relationship with the CIA. Um, Nasser, the CIA tried to create a relationship with Nasser, but they couldn't achieve it. Um, So every Arab strongman is approached by the CIA at one time or another. Even even Assad's family, we used to torture people in Syria. We used to have an agreement where we would torture people in Syria. So we've, like, even Assad had a relationship with the CIA. Every Arab dictator, strongman, general has been approached by the CIA at one time or another. So you can't, like, say, oh, he's a CNI asset. It just, it's just it comes with the territory of being a warlord dictator in the Middle East. I don't. I just don't understand why Iranian media keeps on doing that. Um, they keep on kind of trying to sh- emphasize that, but it just kind of shows you their allegiance that they're backing the Muslim. They're on the side of the Muslim Brotherhood in Africa. So it's just a really interesting dynamic uh, between all these different countries and these different powers, and and, and how the the dichotomy of of what a normal alliance would be would is kind of over uh, when it comes to Libya or out the window when it comes to Libya. Um, I guess I can't stress enough, countries work together for their own interest, so they're not going to be blindly loyal uh, just because of the name of the country or the border that they're fighting on. It's always going to be a some type of geopolitical interest. All right. Man, I wish I uh, had a Danny Abdeljabar to help me segue into the next topic. Scientists have come up with a new plan to fight global warming. Uh, a group of scientists out of Harvard and Yale want to do something called stratospheric aerosol injection. Uh, The technique would involve spraying large amounts of sulfate particles into the Earth's atmospheres with high-altitude aircrafts, and by doing this technique, it would dim out the sun. 
I'm going to play the clip. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. You notice what uh, happens when you leave your car parked outside on a sunny day with the windows all the way up, right? Even if it's not that hot outside, the temperature inside your car goes way up compared to the surrounding climate outside of your car. That's essentially the greenhouse effect. You know about it, right? You learned about it in fifth grade. The heat easily gets in, but it can't get out, which is essentially what's happening to our planet right now. So what do people do? Well, they get thicker windows or they add a dark film to their car, right? Same goes for our bodies. We try and prevent sunburn by wearing sunblock so the sun can't really get in and do damage. Well, think about this. What if we could come up with something like that for our Earth's ozone layer? With more on that concept, news uh, with Rick Sanchez correspondent Michelle Greenstein is here to tell us uh, about this. Okay, so it's a new concept. Sounds like the way I described it. What is it? So this proposal is to use solar geoengineering to reduce temperatures. Mm. In essence, it's a way to mitigate some of the risks that climate scientists are saying will come from CO2 emissions. So in essence, it's actually an alternative to lowering carbon emissions. And some see it as a magic bullet in this way where we can curb the effects of CO2 emissions while continuing to pump millions of tons of CO2 into the air. But the way I described it was we need to come up with something that blocks like yeah. all this from getting in. Is this, a, how are they going to block exactly. it? Exactly, yes, it, it is. So this type of geoengineering uses sulfur dioxide. We're going to inject that into the stratosphere. Sulfur dioxide is the stuff that comes out of volcanoes when they erupt. So when a volcano erupts, um, there's actually a lot of dust and gases that blot out the sun. So these Harvard researchers, these scientists are saying that we can mimic what happens after a volcano eruption to reduce temperatures. And the way they're going to do that is airplanes. They say a fleet of specially designed aircrafts can literally spray sulfur particles into the lower stratosphere, and they're saying, hey, dozens of nations already have the money to do so. Wait a minute. What you just described is a way of slowing down, if not preventing, global warming? Yeah. I mean, let's not, like, you know, mince any words. What we're proposing here is launching aerosols into the air. So historically, there's been a problem with this, and critics of this type of geoengineering say, look, no one really knows how to control it with accuracy. This could easily disrupt climates around the world, inevitably leading to winners and losers with some regions suffering greater harm. But now these researchers are saying it can work without some of those anticipated side effects like extreme rain and hurricanes. They're saying that this work challenges that assumption. Won't they make it darker? Won't it be, like, uh, not all the time yeah and that's the question do we have the right to a blue sky that's a that great should question. be a public debate what, what about finally i think we're down to like 30 seconds sure. or so but tell me how much is this going to cost okay so these researchers say it'll cost 3.5 billion to launch and then 2.25 billion every year after that wouldn't that be worth it if it's uh, actually able to slow down global I mean, warming i mean i mean true but do we want to put that kind of power in certain hands that's all you know up for public debate and you know some people are saying hey maybe it's cheaper to just bioengineer humans so that we have a conscience that we stop polluting so much fascinating conversation i'm glad you brought that to us so all I can think of is that Alex Jones was right the entire time. Alex Jones was right about chemtrails and, and stratospheric air cell injections. And we crap on him all the time. And I make fun of him all the time. But maybe, maybe he's right. There are kooky scientists who are thinking this stuff. That lady said, do we have a right to a blue sky? She literally said, do we have the right to a blue sky? The raises the question, do we have a right to the blue sky? Yes, we, we have a right to we have a right to a this, to have daytime. 
Human beings have the right for da- right to have daytime. Okay, I'm not one of these people who say, "Oh, uh, we have the we deserve the right for healthcare and Medicaid and all this and money." And I don't say that. We do have the right to have daytime. So this is nuts. Um, this is nuts, and it just goes to show you that, like, even though Alex Jones, I think he's a kook, maybe there is something to him yelling about chemtrails and uh, stratospheric air cell injections. Because uh, it is uh, quite alarming, to say the least. All right, so I'm going to wrap this show up. Uh, before we go, I need to make one more announcement regarding, uh, I guess, the future of the show. So, Bro History, uh, that's the name of the podcast right now. So, the future name of the podcast is unclear at this moment. Um, you probably noticed that I change Bro History to bro history foreign policy and geo I, I changed the name from bro history to bro history geopolitics and foreign policy the reason why i do that is is for seo purposes so i'm just trying to make sure that bro history ranks when people are searching geopolitical podcast now the reason why i'm trying i'm thinking about changing the name of the show is because let's just be completely honest we do a lot more than just history we do a lot more news coverage we do a lot of interviews that are very mo- they're very modern and and uh um they're they're relevant so bro history kind of doesn't reflect what we do at this point so i need to know from the people who listen to this show do you like the name bro history should we change it? And do you have a suggestion of a name that we should call ourselves? Because right now we're just trying to brand ourselves, not to reach the most amount of people. We want to reach people who are obviously going to enjoy the content. However, bro history, I think some people, when they get into bro history, they're expecting us to do like a goofy uh, a goofy take on like the Declaration of Independence or the murder of Abraham Lincoln. No, we're not doing that. We're doing like real fucking news coverage. So we need, we're, we're trying, we're, we're brainstorming ideas of a new, of a new name. Um, one of the ideas I had on top of my head was raw politics, just because we had an episode called raw politics and that was downloaded a lot. So it seemed, that seemed to pull people in and it does kind of reflect what we do. And then, and of course, history is part of politics. So we can still tackle that. Now, bro history in itself, I will always be like a part of whatever branding that we have. Like we'll just have a bro history, like, you know, it will be, let's just say if we change it to raw politics. And then we had bro history episode where Danny and I just talk about history. Like that will still be in it. But we're just trying to think of a brand name that will just just that encompass what we do. Uh, geopolitical uh, analysis, history, um, and interviews, and, and great interviews. I'm going to make a Facebook group. I'm going to put it in the, in the description of this episode of, uh, that you can join and you can suggest names or you can give feedback on the branding of the name and, and let, let us know what you think. Another thing that you could do is that if you want to help, help us out even more, rate and review the podcast and suggest make your suggestion in the review while you're making a review so you'll just say um i love bro history or i don't love bro history five stars but like say you love the podcast just the name suggest the name you know what i'm talking about give it a good rating but then make your suggestion for the name in the future i think that is a uh, a good way to go um the reason why i chose bro bro history in the first place is let's just be completely honest like I, I know it's, it's kind of hard. I don't know if it's hard to imagine people across the microphone, but 
like I'm just kind of a bro who's podcasting about politics, uh, to be completely honest. Like, you know, I, at the time I thought, thought of the name bro history, I was like doing powerlifting and stuff like that um, and drinking beer all the time. So it's just like, oh, bro history. So I still do that. Maybe let me know what you think of the brand name. Does bro history, should that be the future brand name? Because we're getting larger. Like we're getting a larger audience. And it's going to, at some point, it's going to be too late to change the name. So let me know. Write a review. Say five star, of course. If it's not five stars, I'm not going to listen to you. Um, I'm just joking. Uh, Say bro history, thumbs up. Bro history, the name, say great podcast. The name should change. Here's my suggestion for the name. And then if you give a suggestion in the name, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll find out some type of reward system for you. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll hook you up with something, um, whether that be, I don't know, merchandise. Like, you'll get the first load of merchandise for free. We'll just, we'll just hook you up with merchandise, and, and uh, we'll, we'll figure out something. But we'll, we'll, we'll shout you out. But let us know in the reviews if you like the name or in the Facebook group that I'm going to create because I know not everyone listens to on, uh, on iTunes, be there Spotify people and Google Podcasts as well. All right, I've gone on long enough. Hopefully this has been um, uh, educational and, uh, and uh, illuminating. Um, but peace. Peace.